Good morning. You guys ready for something new? All right. We got one. Thanks, Ms. Faith. I am. I am excited to, to jump into a new series. We're going to be talking through the letter of 1 Peter. So short little one in the back of your Bible. If you want to cue that up, go all the way to Revelation and then just back up a few pages. You'll find 1 Peter in there somewhere. And we're going to explore what Peter has to say to the people that he was writing to. I think it's really important that we understand that each section of the Bible was written by a person, a real person, at a specific time in history, to a specific audience, and for a specific purpose. So if we want to get the most out of this letter to First Peter, we need to start by understanding who wrote it, who did he write it to, to whom did he write it? Thank you, grammar police. I saw you cringing. To whom did he write it? And what was the reason um, for this letter? So let's start with who. It's, this is Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus. When you first meet Peter in Scripture, his name is Simon. He's a fisherman. He has a brother named Andrew. Andrew heard John the Baptist preach in the desert. And he would go and listen to John the Baptist preach about the coming Messiah. And one day, John the Baptist looks, and he sees Jesus walking, and he points to him, and he says, there he goes. That, that's the guy I've been talking about. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew says, really, that's, that's him? Then why am I listening to you? And so he goes and begins to follow Jesus. And the first person he tells about this is his brother, Simon. He says, you gotta, I met Jesus. I met the Messiah. You got to come. And so he introduces Simon, his brother, to Jesus. Eventually, Peter ends up, Simon, Peter, Jesus, Simon. Simon leaves everything to follow Jesus, gives up, walks away from his job and everything else to be with Jesus. And Jesus gives him a new name. He sees something special in him, and so he gives him a name, the name Peter, which has a Greek meaning. Uh, it's the word for rock. So we have a, a, a rare photo of Peter from this time. Um, that we, was captured and preserved through history. There, there he is. Uh, Jesus said, he looked at him and he said, man, you're the, you're the rock. And uh, from this point on, we can take that off. We don't need to look at that all day. <laughs> Just makes the rest of us feel like wimps, doesn't it? Okay. Um, from that point on, Peter began to have some pretty incredible experiences with Jesus he walked on water. He's the only person that we know of besides Jesus who ever did that. He, he actually got out of a boat and walked across the water. And he saw Moses and Elijah, these two guys that had, had been gone for hundreds of years, and Peter saw them, laid eyes on them. He had some, some downs too. It wasn't all up. He had some bad moments. He had a moment where Jesus called him Satan. That, that's not good, right? He had he tried to correct Jesus about something, which is always a bad idea. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Also, when Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing him three times. So he had his ups, he had his downs. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, he preaches his very first sermon about Jesus to a huge crowd. And 3,000 people respond to the message. As a preacher, I kind of, I'm kind of jealous of that. That's pretty awesome. So he... he he came a long way from where he started as Simon the fisherman to Peter the apostle of Jesus. He saw a lot. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. He soaked in every word that Jesus said. And now he's writing this letter uh, 
30, 30 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus to a group of Christians that, that don't live in Jerusalem where Peter really lives and, and kind of does most of his work. So he's sending this letter out to these people. And he's writing to them for a very specific purpose. He recognizes that it's a difficult life for a follower of Jesus. That you're going to live in a culture that is hostile to your faith. It's going to be difficult to follow Jesus in a culture that looks at you and says, what are you doing? Why would you do that? In fact, many people in the culture feared Christians because they didn't understand them. So they assumed there's something, there's something kind of wrong with these people because they don't act like everybody else. And so there was some persecution that was happening for the believers. And Peter writes this message to encourage them that there is a purpose to their suffering and pain, that there's something good on the other side of it. So he's writing to these uh, the Christians that are they're living in this other area in a land that's hostile to their faith. What, what is there for us in this? Do you live in a culture that is hostile to your faith? Have you ever experienced persecution from following Jesus? We, we may think of persecution as violence and aggression. Maybe you get arrested and thrown in prison. This is what happened to the Christians in Jerusalem. They were being arrested and thrown into prison. Some of them were even being executed. In fact, there was a young man named Stephen who was a deacon and a powerful preacher, and he preached the wrong message to the wrong people at the wrong time, and they killed him. And at that point, a lot of these Jews who had become Jesus followers in Jerusalem said, it's not safe for us here in Jerusalem anymore. They're killing Christians, so they, they left. They scattered. Some of them went back home to places where they, uh, they were from originally. And, and these are the people that Peter's writing to. And they go back to a culture, uh, a, a Greek culture, that's not exactly aggressive with physical violence towards them, but there's still persecution there. These people look at them as, as different and maybe a danger to their society. So is that how you feel? Do you face persecution for your faith? Now, no one is probably going to arrest you and throw you in prison for reckless generosity, but people who find out how you live and manage your resources for the benefit of others may think that that's foolish, and they may wonder why you do that, and they may say things to you or about you that are unkind because what you're doing doesn't make sense to them. It's a subtle form of persecution, more social than physical. Nobody's going to beat you up in the alleyway for conducting your business with honesty and integrity, but if you do that, it may cause you to miss out on financial opportunities from time to time. We live in a culture that expects us to be outraged by anything that we disagree with. People that take a different side on an issue, any controversial subject, you're supposed to have an opinion about it, and you're supposed to be outraged by the people that oppose you. And if you don't, then people may think that you're either ignorant, you don't really understand the issues, or you just don't care. You don't really care about other human beings. And so if you care, you should be outraged. And if you're not outraged, you don't care. It's a subtle form of persecution. It's not physical, but... It's there. I think there are a lot of different ways that we can face persecution here in America. In other parts of the world, it's very dangerous physically just to follow Jesus, for people to find out that you're a Christ follower can be a danger to your life and to your family. 
We don't face that as much here. But I think the expectation, this even came from Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And Peter says it as well. He anticipates suffering, persecution, and pain for followers of Jesus. So where is the hope in this? Where's the hope in this? So that's what we're going to begin with today and kind of get a foundation for what this letter is about and how to move forward in this conversation. So let's read verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and kind of get started here. <clears throat> Peter writes, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter starts this conversation by pointing out something that happened in the past and something that is coming in the future. So he starts with saying, um, you have been born again into a living hope. This is something that happened in your past. If, if you have put your trust in the resurrected Jesus, you've made him the center of your life. You did the same thing Peter did when he walked away from his fishing boat and you said, giving everything to Jesus. Then you've been born again into a living hope. So, so he points back to the crucifixion, uh, that's a cross, and then that's, that's a tomb with a stone and the, some light coming out of it, <laughs> if, in case you can't decipher that. So he points back to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and said, this is an event that happened in the past. And if you have put your trust in Christ, that's an event that happened in the past. And that points you to something really significant that is coming in the future. That there's, there's going to be a time, and Peter uses different phrases for this, like when Christ is revealed or when your salvation is revealed or when the glory of God is revealed. And he points the people ahead to this future that is kept in heaven for you. So you've got this past event, you've got this future event, and what's connecting you is this living hope, this living hope. Right? Because the decision you made to put Jesus at the center in your past, you have a hope that there's going to be this future time when Jesus is going to make everything right again. When, when God's rule and reign will be absolute, when the only thing that happens among humans is exactly what God wants to see happen, a kingdom that's ruled by love and peace and joy and purpose, that's coming. Right? That's pretty exciting, right? So the question is, what about now? What, what do we do in the meantime? Does it matter what we do? If we have this experience in our past, we've put our trust in Christ, and we know that this is coming in our future when we're going to be united with Christ, it'll be eternity, it's kept in heaven for us, then what about now? Does it matter what we do now? Well, let's, let's find out. Let's continue reading. We're going to skip down to verses 13 through 16. So up until this point, Peter has not given any instructions on how to live. He's just said, this event in the past is pointing you to the future. He even talks about the prophets who came before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and they were looking ahead to this moment. So it's all about these, these past and future events, and now he's going to talk a little more practically. Verse 13, he says, therefore, therefore, since you have this experience in your past and you have this hope in the future, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. 
So he's saying, don't, don't, don't forget this connection between the past and future event. Then he says, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says, okay, do you want to know what to do in the present? Do you want to know if it matters? Yes, it matters. And here's what you're supposed to do. Be holy. And at this point, many of us kind of go, uh-oh. <laughs> I, I, I don't know about that because if you, if you were raised with the same sort of understanding of holiness as I was, uh, you're, you're worried at this point because I was taught that holiness means like moral perfection. If you're holy, you always do what's right and you never do what's wrong. And if that's what holiness means, I'm in trouble. How about you? Do you always do what's right and do you never do what's wrong? If, if that's holiness, I mean, yes, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us live in a way that, that honors Christ, but still, always right and never wrong, I feel like I'm a long way from that. If that's what I'm supposed to be doing now, I'm in trouble. But here's the good news. That's not what holiness means. There's, there's no really evidence, there's no definition in Scripture that says holiness is moral perfection. In fact, we get a little bit of a different picture of holiness. If you go all the way back to when God sets up the Israelites a couple thousand years before Jesus comes as his chosen people, he says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to be my people to worship me. And so they set up this system for sacrifices and for worshiping God. And it centers around this place called the tabernacle, which is just like a portable temple. And in the tabernacle, there's all this different furniture and different things that they're supposed to use in the worship of God. And each of those pieces of furniture and objects are holy. In fact, when he instructs the priests how to make these things and get them ready for worship, one of the objects is a lampstand. It's just a, it's a lamp, you know what a lampstand, I don't need to describe that. It's a lampstand. So he says, take this lampstand, make it out of gold, and then cleanse it, purify it, and make it holy. So the lampstand is holy. Does that mean the lampstand is morally perfect? That it always does right and never does wrong? No. Lampstands uh, outside of Disney, they don't have like, you know, this moral compass. They don't do things. What is holy about the lampstand? It has been set apart for one purpose, the worship of God. That's it. That's what makes it holy. He's essentially saying, all right, priests, you can't take this lampstand home and put it in your living room at night so that you can play euchre with your family. That's not what the lampstand is for, right? The lampstand is only for one purpose. It's to light the holy place so that you can engage in worship with God inside this building. That's what holiness means. It means something that has been set apart for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to worship God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are holy. You have been set apart for one purpose. It's not about moral perfection. It's about who you are, your identity. You've been set apart for one purpose. So he says, embrace that purpose. In fact, I think the way that Peter would express this, and the way that it would look to outsiders is holiness means strange. Holiness means strange. If you live in such a way that the kingdom of God is what matters most in the world, if you understand that there's two realities, there's the reality of 
the physical world, the things that you can see and taste and touch and smell. And then there's another reality of, of the eternal kingdom of God where, where there are things in there that you can't see and taste and touch and smell, but they're just as real. And if you acknowledge that that reality, the kingdom of God, is what matters most in the world, you're going to be strange. People are going to look at you like you're odd. And some of you, you're like, I get that all the time. Yeah, that's good. You're strange. And it's a good thing. Be strange. Embrace your strangeness as one who has decided that Jesus at the center of my life is the most important thing to me. I'm not going to let anything get in the way of me being set apart for one purpose, and that is the worship of God. So why, why does this matter so much? If we've already had this event in your past, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've got this moment in your past where you said, given everything to Jesus, and then that comes with the promise that you're going to have eternal life with God in the, in the kingdom of God where everything is going to be made right, then why does it matter how we live in the present? Well, let, let's talk about... Um, this object that I have with me. This is my wife's uh, engagement ring, which I uh, gave to her in July of 1999. Uh, it was really cool. I, I found out that I had a cousin who owned a jewelry store. So I bought the ring from him. And so when she opened the box, it says Coulter's Diamonds inside the box, which I, th I thought was really awesome. And uh, in 1999, July, we set a date to go to this place that was really special to us. It was the, the University of Tennessee Agricultural Gardens. And it was open to the public. You could go there. We, we, would, we had many dates there. We would go and, and walk around, enjoy the garden, and, and talk, you know. And um, it was a special place for us. So we had this date set, and we went. And I got down on one knee, and I held this ring out to her and asked her to marry me. And in a moment of weakness, she said, yes. And from that moment on, things were different with us. This was kind of new. This was, this was a big deal. This was a big commitment. And, and she would wear this ring and, and kind of, she, she began to be left-handed, you know? It was like, everything was like out here, you know, so that people could see the ring. There, there are certain kinds of people in the world that you don't have to ask them what's important to them. They will tell you. And in, a newly engaged girl, somebody that does CrossFit, you don't have to ask them. They just, you just know, Right? And so she's wearing this ring because she wants people to know that she's, she's engaged, she's been set apart, that there is something coming in the future that we're really excited about, our wedding day. And, and the, the plans and preparations begin for that, I think. I, I wasn't very involved with that part of it. And so the ring means we had this moment in the past where I asked, she answered, and it's pointing to this future event our wedding day. Now, does it matter how she lives and relates to me in between? Of course it does, right? If she puts this ring on and she wears it around and she tells all her friends that I'm engaged and I'm getting married, but then she kind of comes to me and says, hey, you know what would be uh, interesting to me is if I could just continue to date other guys and look around and make sure I'm making the right decision, how would that make me feel? Am I going to be okay with that? No, we, we made a promise. We, we made a commitment to each other. We are set apart for each other. And, and you're not for anybody else. And I'm not for anybody else. I'm for you and you're for me. And that's it. No, you can't date around. She didn't ask me that, by the way. She's holy. We, what, what if she came and said, hey, like, thank you so much for the ring. That was great. 
and I can't wait for the, the wedding. That's going to be awesome. But in the meantime, could you just not call me? Like, I don't really need to talk to you. I don't feel like we need to go out on any dates. Like, we, 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 we had the date that matters most. I got the ring. So just don't, like, we don't need to spend any time together. We'll get married someday, and it'll be great. Would that be okay with me? No, the whole purpose of, of the ring and the promise is because I want to be with her, right? I want this relationship with her to grow and develop, and time together is, is important. You see where I'm going with this? Anybody following me? I'm not going to sit that down. Let's go back in the pocket. You had this experience. You had this event in your past, if you're a follower of Jesus, where you said yes to Jesus. You went all in with him, and you became set apart for a relationship with him. And that, that day pointed you to something in the future where when you die or Jesus comes back, you're gonna be a part of the kingdom of heaven where everything is made right with God. But in the meantime, if you were to, to, to kind of look at God and go, you know what, I'm so glad for what you did. I know that ring was expensive. It, it cost you the life of your son. So thanks for that, but... I'm not sure I'm, I'm sold yet. I'm going to keep looking around at some other ways to live and some other belief systems, and I want to check some other things out and make sure I really made the right choice. I mean, how's that, how's that going to make God feel? I mean, he's got a lot invested in this relationship with you. Or if you kind of look at God and go, hey, thanks so much for the ring, for the, the death of your son, and I'm so excited about being forgiven of my sins, and I can't wait for heaven. But in the meantime, we don't really need to talk. We don't really need to hang out. You know, I'm just going to kind of live my life and, and I'm going I'm to have as much fun as I can. And, and I, I'm just counting on you to, to come through for me when I die. Keep your promise. I mean, God's like, no, the whole point of, of this was a relationship with you. No, you can't just check out on me like that. What, what we do in the middle matters. It, it's your life between your commitment to Christ and whenever you enter into the eternal kingdom, your life is an engagement ring. It's a, it's a sign to the people around you that says, I'm, I'm spoken for. I'm committed. I'm set apart. Like, I'm not going to be like everybody else because I'm not like everybody else. I'm, I'm going to be strange. And this, this is why we see some strong language about this in Scripture. In James chapter 4, James is another uh, follower of Jesus who, who writes this letter um, to uh, other Christians. In chapter 4, verse 4, can you imagine uh, your preacher getting up and saying this to you on a Sunday morning? You adulterous people. Most of you would be out at that point, like, no thanks. Um, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He calls them adulterous. Why? Because they're set apart for this relationship. And you can't go from here into a friendship with the world, which is kind of like saying, I'm going to date, I'm going to date around. I'm going to date the world. I'm going to be, you know, open to other possibilities and other relationships. James says, you can't do that. That's adultery. You, you're committed. You can't cheat on God like that. Knock it off. You're called to be holy, to be strange. This sounds kind of harsh to, to say it that way, but it's the right language for what's going on here. You're committed. 
Don't act like it. You're, you're called to be different. So embrace strange. Embrace being different. What does it look like to embrace strange in our culture? I want to give you just three examples that I see uh, pr- pretty much on a daily basis. And if any of these apply to you, then you've got a step to take. If none of these apply to you, um, welcome to the world. Because <laughs> I, think, I think this will hit everybody somewhere. So here's example number one. In a world where outrage is normal, be strange. In a world where outrage is normal, be strange. So many people seem to be on the edge of outrage all the time. Just, just waiting for an issue to come up, a comment to come up that, that touches a sensitive button in them, you know? I'm just ready to be outraged about the Democrats are doing what? I'm outraged. The Republicans said what? I'm outraged. I'm outraged about the military, law enforcement, guns, abortion, racism, women's issues, gender issues, taxes. I'm exhausted from being outraged about all these things. And why am I outraged? Because our world says you should have an opinion about everything, right? Isn't that how it feels sometimes? An issue comes up and everybody wants to know, what is your opinion? Which side are you on? Pick a side and be mad at the other side. That's how it feels like we're supposed to live. Outraged all the time about things that we disagree with and outraged against people we disagree with. What if we embraced our strangeness, our holiness in this world of outrage and instead of outrage, our response was compassion towards people. It's okay to care about issues, but as followers of Christ, we're called to love people. A few weeks ago, a prominent evangelical pastor said some unkind things about um, a woman Christian leader named Beth Moore. And whether you agree with what he said, I don't know if you know about this, you can look it up later, but whether you agree with what he said or not, the way he said it was um, demeaning and, and unkind. Beth Moore has a, a very big social platform, and she had an opportunity in that moment to retaliate. She could have gone after him and said unkind things about him. She had a lot of people on her side who did that very thing, went after this guy, said unkind things about him, called him a false leader, uh, not, he's not a Christian, he's, he's what's wrong with the church today, a lot of mean things. And Beth Moore finally chimed in and she said, knock it off. We're, we're not gonna get involved in slander against this guy. We're not gonna do it. I don't wanna be any, I don't want any part of that. Now, she, she reiterated, it's good to talk, let's talk about the issue, but we're not gonna attack people in the process. And she lobbied for compassion and love and kindness towards someone who was not loving and kind to her. Isn't, isn't that the way of Jesus? Isn't that what it looks like to be strange? I, I would even call that holiness. She passed up an opportunity to get even, and instead she showed compassion. In a world where outrage is normal, be strange. Show compassion. Example number two, in a world where sexual, sexual immorality is normal, be strange. Our, our sexuality is a gift from God. In fact, it's a sacred, holy gift. It was set apart by God for one specific context, the context of a marriage. And in that context, it is glorifying to God. It honors God. And we're grateful for it. Amen? 
Okay, just me? Cool. All right. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to talk about that later. But we live in a world that says something very different about sexuality. It says it is, it is for you to get what you want. That's what your sexuality is for. And whatever you have to do, however you want to express it, in order to get what you want out of it, go for it. Knock yourself out. No rules. Just live. Enjoy. In a world where that's normal, be strange. Be strange. Make a decision. My, my sexuality is sacred. It's holy. It's for one purpose, one context, and that's the only way I'm going to express it. That, that's strange in the world that we live in. It's holy. Example number three, in a world where wearing masks is normal, be strange. We live in a culture where it's easier than ever to present a false self to the people around you. You can do it through social media. You can do it just through the way that you sort of act differently depending on who you're with and some people get to see real, the real you and, and some people get to see a very fake and different you. The way that we do this, we get a lot of different reactions happening inside of us. Either we become jealous irrationally of people who seem to have a much better life than us through their pictures and their stories or we go the other way and we become very suspicious of everyone. We assume that everyone is lying all the time. And no one's being real. And it makes it difficult to build relationships because of this. We don't know who to trust. What if, in a world where wearing masks is normal, what if you were honest, open, transparent about who you really are? What, what if instead of hiding all your flaws, you sort of just owned them and embraced them? What if trying to cover up all your mistakes, you took responsibility, you confess, you repent, you seek forgiveness? That sounds strange, doesn't it? Sounds holy, doesn't it? Look, we have opportunities all around us every single day to be strange, to embrace this holiness that Peter has called us to. Peter's going to build on this as he goes through the letter. And this idea of holiness is going to be the foundation for getting through the suffering, pain, persecution that's coming. Peter says, look, I know life is hard. And sometimes for followers of Jesus, it's harder because you've set your sights on something different from the world around you. But I want to give you a foundation for engaging in the community that you live in. You can't just opt out and separate yourself completely. We're called to love the world the people of the world. Well, how do we do that without getting caught up in everything that's normal in this culture? We practice holiness. We practice strangeness. So my hope and prayer for you is that there's something about the way you live this week that will be strange to people around you. Now, not, not repulsive. We don't want to push people away from God by being obnoxious, but... Man, we want them to know what's really most important to us, don't we? My hope is that you'll live out your faith in a way that is strange to people around you. And that in doing so, you get a chance to share about why you made the decision you made and what you have to look forward to in the future. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, that is why... We have chosen to put him at the center of our lives. He has proven himself faithful and worthy. 
And I thank you for the promise of heaven, for the opportunity we have to live in the kingdom of God where everything is right. And we look forward to that. In the meantime, Father, would you help us? Help us to see what it looks like to live out our faith in a way that's different from the rest of the world, that shows that we have different priorities, that our sights are set on something different. And when we do that, God, would you use our, our story, would you use our lifestyle to point people to Jesus? Ultimately, God, we want to see everyone in this relationship with Christ. So use our strangeness, Father, to let other people see who Christ really is and why he belongs at the center of their lives as well. Would you do that through us and in us, Father? In Christ's name, amen.